This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, and welcome to the Monday Twilight Show with me, Hannah Wilson. And on this Monday, I'm going to be talking about high prior attaining students. How do we come to the conclusion that they are high prior attaining students, and how do they change through their time at school? How can we challenge them and make sure they do reach their potential? So join in, ask questions, and enjoy the this show. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org or to download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly and access actionable data that drives student success. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. And welcome to my Monday show. Um, So tonight I'm going to chat about high prior attaining students and kind of what we need to do with them because sometimes they can be the forgotten kind of students because they always work hard and they always do well and they they don't cause any problems but actually they need to be our focus we need to make sure that they are achieving everything that they need to achieve um so i actually found it really really hard to find the data on how they actually create um prior attainers so i believe this is going on uh one website that I found, the high priority students are defined as the students who achieve 105 or more in their combined English and math scale score in primary school. Um, you can also add students if their CAT score is uh, when taken in year seven in September is identified as those as higher achieving um, or those that might not have SAT scores. And there's actually a HPA plus group which are students that achieve 120 or more combined in their English and math scores. Um, so that's how I believe it to be kind of measured 
but actually it was something that I've always just been been told and um I've never really considered how they got that information I knew it was um on some data from their SAT scores but that kind of clarifies exactly what our higher entertainers are and I'm joined by Sonia can you hear me Sonia yes I can hear you can you hear me I can, lovely and clear. Thank you for joining me. So I know you're kind of looking into high prior attainers and kind of researching them. So um, we're going to chat through the research tonight. Um, but I th- I just find that they're a really interesting group of students um, to that are kind of quite often forgotten. They're, they're generally the good kids or, or things like that. But um, how do you find it in terms of science? Do you find that the high prior attaining data that we kind of given from primary school matches with what you're seeing in lessons in terms of are are the correct students being identified as high prior attainers? I think it can be a bit wishy-washy. I mean, when it comes to science, you really don't get good data on the students until they're really reaching high school. A lot of it's coming from math and English. Um, and getting good baseline and good understanding before they're hitting their GCSEs is something that I find has been a struggle um, here and from abroad. And, and, and then getting those kids into the right groupings. A lot of times it is, oh, it's the good kids, oh, the ones that you know do all their work. But are we actually missing kids in that process? And then in the whole grand scheme of it, when we have these classes, having the time to actually develop and create really kind of forward pushing material where you're bringing in things that can extend the students. I don't think that that's done as consistently as we could. Because that's the thing I find um, a little bit in terms of the process is the fact that they kind of do these SATS tests in primary schools and obviously there are some issues with schools kind of teaching to the tests and them not necessarily having the general knowledge they've just done well in those tests and then they have the CATS tests when they um, come up to secondary school Um, but are we are we kind of repeating the process or do you think we're accurately kind of working out the correct ones or is that too much kind of testing or do we need to take it more on teacher onus and actually we need to work out who our high prioritizing students are ourselves as opposed to this kind of generalized test i think it is too much test onus so you can see things i mean i've had just the most brilliant engineering mind kind of sitting in the back corner and if they could wear a hoodie they'd be the one kind of hidden under their hoodie if they had it on and then all of a sudden the right question or right idea comes along and they are are just rocketing ahead with what they can do and even just now when i walk around and i watch my year sevens and i listen to what they're saying what they produce and what they can say and what they know isn't always coming across at that young age on an exam based like scale so they're not necessarily showing it Um, and i have had kids that have been incredibly talented and then have ended up being set lower and not achieving what they possibly could or and they actually are high achieving kids with really good thoughts so i don't know how to flesh this out better this is something in thinking about that and 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 looking at curriculum uh, i'm looking at it 
from physics right now in a math-based way. And some of the research is saying that it's setting up these routines for the kids to actually have those super high expectations and then teaching them how to be independent to do the work to that expectation. And I've kind of, this is where I'm kind of looking at, how do I give them those skills to be independent to smash out those physics problems um, in a situation like an exam? Because that's the thing, because from, from an art point of view, uh, I can have high prior retainers, but obviously it's based on English and maths that uh, that would never get a nine in art because they just haven't got that natural talent with art. Um, and I've had I've even had arguments with parents on parents' evenings that are like, our child is targeted that. Why why are you only predicting them a four? And it's like, because they draw a flower like with five petals and a circle in the middle, and that's not how you draw. And they they're so used to getting everything right um that they kind of struggle with that different processing so i do think there's a, something to be said in terms of giving the onus to the teachers i know at our school we we're allowed to change their target grades but essentially the data doesn't change the school's still judged on the high prioritainers but i could have low prioritainers in english and maths but actually they're high prioritainers in art so it doesn't really kind of work across all subjects and I think it's quite and also I think it, like like you said with the testing and stuff at the age I do wonder in terms of because obviously the students are all developing schema in their brains like that's all developed um, up until their teenage years and this is the important bits that we're trying to give them information to help them link the schema to be able to kind of recall in, the information and as their brain develops they'll become better at that and they they'll be able to recall information but actually, is it that? Is it that the kids like that do really well in the SATs that actually their just schemas developed a little bit quicker? But does it then kind of reduce and actually other kids catch up? And is that why sometimes higher prioritainers don't quite get there or other kids kind of catch them up? It's from a science point of view, is there is there anything from like that side that actually is it that they're just developing? Is there anything that we can think of in terms of HPAs as to why they might drop off or is it that they just fall in with not the wrong cloud but they become more interested in other things than um academia and that idea that mixing with different people from different schools and having different friendship groups when they move from primary school and also having bigger classes they're out with that tiny little nurture bubble in some cases that it can really change kind of them as a person but I think they're you know you bring up a good point. Kids develop at a very different levels and at different ages. And, you know, as we know, you know, classic boys mature differently than girls, yet we test boys at age 16 when they can be developmentally lagging. And then you see them at 18 and they're miles different. And if had, had they not had been tested and judged at that age when they were probably still developing or, or more immature um, compared to the girls, would that have been a difference? I mean, that starts to bring in so many variables, the story, you know, and then there's also the argument right now within science is the aspiration issue. Do our high prior attainers actually see themselves or know where they're going to go if they really love science? Do they have an idea about careers and options that exist? Because or are they limited in what they know of careers? And so they don't think that they fit into that box. 
know. That's quite interesting because I was doing careers with my tutor group and they were doing the um, Barclays kind of wheel thing where they had to put in their personality traits and things that they were interested in it, and it churned out all these jobs and some of them they hadn't heard of before and mm-hmm. and I was like oh but like I've, I've got friends that are, uh, are like um, online uh, project managers and they oversee kind of design projects and things online I'm like I'm like they told me that you could train in that and earn 50k and, and like some of them I know are earning 100k and and they kind of have that freedom that they can work wherever they want one of them did a, a flat swap and works in um, Spain for the summer and it's like I, th- the, I don't think they necessarily know the jobs that's available to them. And certainly from an art perspective, people are like, oh, it's just art. But it's like, but actually everything that we do is designed. And and I, I think I've mentioned it on another show, but I, I'm like very much, if I go back to uni, I want to do this course. But the Norwich University Arts, they do an interactive user degree where you learn about how people's psychology interact with apps like the colors and the designs and the things that you need to do to get people to be more addicted and more um interactive more likely to open an app and things like that so it's quite interesting from that point of view in terms of how um limited they are necessarily in terms of the the careers that are available to them now because i guess it's all changed a lot since their parents were at school and picking their careers and perhaps they're not um shown those experiences and options which is interesting because i'm currently doing um this lego master class as the theme this year for the engineering group and it is more not just stem it's steam it's linking engineering to the arts and so they're having to learn about sound and light and art and one of the things actually in our project that they're learning about is how could you make museum pieces more interactive and the concept we were working on today, I, there's kind of two split groups, was looking at innovation and how could you take something that's a known problem and fix it or make it more interesting or improve it? And how could you use technology for that? And you think of going to museums and you're going places and some of the kids were mentioning, oh, when you went to this such and such museum, they had something that you could interact with and that was really engaging to them. And I think that's a really cool link. And, you you know, why do we separate art from science, especially engineering, when it is a, they're both creative forms and they're both problem-solving forms? I mean, they look at it from a different perspective, you know, you know, because one is creating a piece and one might be, well, but they're still creating something. Even if you're an engineer creating prosthetics, you're still trying to get a means to an end. And there's there is a problem that you're trying to solve to do that, whether it's with color or, you know, media or something like that. And I think that's the thing. I think there's a lot more crossover with subjects than there used to be. Everyone kind of used to stay in their lanes. But now, like, there's a lot more crossover in terms of subjects and the different kind of combinations that students can kind of put together because I remember at my previous school we were linked to um a very a science and maths sixth form but we quite often had their students come over and do our a level and then do kind of science and maths a level alongside it because they wanted to be architects and and designers and actually the balance was really nice um so it's it's an interesting one that it's nice to see how they kind of cross over and get the students to see how they blend and I think that that's something that an HPA student can do quite well is that they can kind of link 
across the different subjects and put that knowledge together well. Yeah, I've had students in the past that have studied when they've done A-level, whether it's been here or within the States, they've taken on courses like they knew they wanted to be um, environmental science in law or they wanted to go into a medical business. And so they were crossing, so they were taking the biology courses and they were going to go on and study, you know, some form of medicine, but then not go on to the doctorate part of that, go on and get a master's in business or go on and try and get into a law program with that knowledge behind them because they wanted to specialize in those areas. And I thought that, like you're saying, is quite interesting. And then, you know, as we know, we're not what we were 50 years ago where people were in one career their whole life. And you do need to have some breadth and knowledge in the society because things change rapidly and in different ways. So you do have to have an understanding of different areas, I think, you know, because what if you do, you start out on one path, even if it's art, and you end up on another path. I mean, I have known physicists, pure physicists that have end up being the reason why they saved whales because they understood sound. And so they developed the sound equipment to go out there and be put on as buoys in the ocean to collect the harmonics because they knew the physics of it. And he says, I never thought when I started my career, I'd be a whale person, <laughs> you, know, <so laughs> you know, completely different aspect and into biology and animals. And that was not his path at all to begin with. So yeah and I think that's the thing with HPAs isn't it quite often it's like they're so good at everything because they've got that work ethic um that quite often they're pinholed oh you must be a lawyer or a doctor and actually they don't necessarily take the time to find the thing that they love and enjoy and understand that work is is meant to be a passion is meant you've got you're going to spend so many hours of your life doing it it needs to be something that you enjoy um but it seems there's a lot of pressure on them to do certain, to go down certain kind of career routes. Yeah. I I mean, I agree. And I go that again is back to us. I think within education and not helping the kids to see those different options better. And I I know when I get our school, we've been now trying um, since everything has been more settled with COVID to bring some of these things back in and really looking at how we're doing that within PSHE and form. And I, I think that's a good thing, but will that change quickly? I, I wonder sometimes if that's also not a product of what they have available at the six forms. And which is why at one point with the T levels, it was quite exciting to give kids that opportunity. Some of the kids that not are not just purely theoretical but really love science or really love areas that had access in the T levels that they too could still take those courses and still too could move forward in those programs, even though they were more on a hands-on experience. And do you think we um, kind of split off the HPAs early on in terms of kind of deciding like you guys have double or triple kind of GCSEs like what goes into deciding that does the prior retaining data kind of help you decide or do you do it off other aspects I think it's coming a lot from those baseline tests that they come in with 
and then the ones they sit within year seven, and then how they perform as they go through those first couple years. And I don't know if it's ever going to be a perfect system, but you also can have kids, like I had a student in an A-level program that you would have looked at the marks and gone, yeah, no, there's no way. As we know, you know how they always say in that old adage that if you got an A, then it could be a B, that kind of thing. Well, yeah. Well, would have had, you know, a U. And then, but they really wanted to go on and do nursing with environment related because it was a program in the state that science, environmental science is a science course. And she, um, she ended up getting almost an A. This is someone that like, okay, you like there's, you're not even ranking on the scales of any science yet you're taking a course that applied all three sciences together as an application course. So quite a higher order thinking course. And she almost got an A because she wanted to be there. And I think that's some of it too. And the, in recent years, I, I kind of liked the change that we've done with the separate sciences and that we have allowed there to be a second set so that it wasn't just those elite 30 kids. It was the all the kids that maybe wanted to have that, that chance and that challenge. And I've taught both the pure kind of triple and then that the kids that would have been in the second set that were there because they wanted to be there and they can do just as well so and probably it's one of the, it's one of those I remember as a kid I was I was in like a middle set mass but I was I, I was kind of top of that class and they were put going to put me on the lower paper and in the end I think they moved me up a class and then I went on the higher paper and I, I still got an A out of it but it was like the fact that I was that 50 50 decision as to which way I go um I still think I'm like oh gosh would I have got that if I hadn't have been moved so I think there's there's so much influence from a teacher to kind of get it right and I think that's also the things yes prior attainers can be very intelligent they probably also um potentially got um better home life so having more conversations more oracies so therefore they're building that schema and they're having anxiety so they're able to make those links to be able to kind of take that information to a higher level um but it's it's kind of how do we teach them to make sure that they've got the right skill sorry my phone cut out i think how do we teach them? Well, that's what I'm looking at right now is, is um, how do I come across when I'm, I'm developing a way to deal with something that is a high prior attainer issue, is a known issue, which is something that when you look at Ofsted and what some of the research is saying on high prior attainers, you know, what are the known misconceptions? What are the known issues? And I'm trying to grab one of those that I know if they go on, it has massive impact if they follow that routine of solving problems. And even I can even frame it that it applies to my middle and lower sets because it's just a way of looking at a problem, really stepping through it and thinking through what you're trying to do 
and then go forth and do what they because the math itself isn't hard um the physics math that exists within within most of the tests outside of one area with the multi-step problems is so accessible but because the kids don't know or haven't practiced a really kind of routine way of looking at it they're not comfortable solving it and you know in previous time we would have just had I, I mean, I remember being taught a very kind of structured way of going at these physics problems. And this is maybe what stepped me back thinking, why was I okay? I, I mean, I was young in high school. I was a year younger than everyone. And I made it through what would be like a physics A level, you know. But because we were told and taught a very structured way in chemistry and in physics, and if you follow that, you were able to carry on with that success. And I was able to do them both like that in in university so is there something to that and then you know the idea of then giving those high prior attainers the sampling of what they can have at a level within that same topic using that schema and i've been dabbling with that and i, I watched my current year 10s and they are answering baby a level physics questions because they're getting kind of a structured framework. And then I celebrate that with them. Oh, well, if this is, yeah, you've just, <laughs> you've kind of beat the scale on GCSE and you're able to do this. You're able to go on and try that. And even if you have a few that are kind of getting partway through it, I go, well, look, you've made it partway through too. That is something you are on the track to being able to do this. But and I think is... it's that, isn't it? You're giving them skills to be able to work themselves up. And I think there's there's a lot to be said to actually kind of get part of the way and, and make mistakes and kind of and and build upon that. Because you there's so much pressure, I think, on kids to instantly get everything right. And actually mm -hmm. it is a process. And I think it is one of those that we're teaching them skills. We're teaching them the, the skills to be able to answer these and that's the thing with it isn't it we're creating stuff that's transferable to other subjects um i was reading uh aiden sever's um blog on uh greater depth general principles of challenge for high prior attaining pupils um and he lists six general principles so we're kind of coming to those so more and then he puts in brackets and more complex knowledge so we, they, the kids need more knowledge and more complex knowledge uh, provide opportunities for children to demonstrate and do something with their knowledge teach master classes remove scaffolding and support to encourage independence communicate high expectations and personalize the challenge and that's kind of what you're you're saying there you're kind of discussing um kind of the process for the kids you're giving them challenging things that they've got to try and rise to but you don't actually necessarily it's, it's not necessarily about the end destination it's it's the challenge of trying to understand the process because actually if it clicks then they can apply it to, to everything else it, but it's getting them to think a little more more deeply and harder well, as we, you know, nothing, as an, I mean, I've been a long time examiner, nothing makes me, I guess, sad, more sad than when you look at questions that a kid will just leave blank. It's like, this is a GCSE. And had they had some basic, like you're saying, skills or ways of looking at things. And I had a brilliant uh, 
history teacher that was very good at getting you to analyze and, and just brilliant in the skill of being able to write that way. And, you know, when you have a document, how do you deal with this? And I was thinking about this with my year sevens. How can I get kids not to avoid things? And we have, a, we're working on a newer curriculum within our, our trust. And the math is, they're trying to show the math to the younger students that they'll see at GCSE and start bringing it in so that it's kind of, they seeing it more often. As we know, the more you see things, the easier that can, can make it. And I thought they're looking at that going, wow, that's challenging. I think we were doing significant figures in standard form. And so my, my question to start the day with them was, what do games teach you? And have you ever played a card game was kind of how I played that out. And most of them said yes. And I said, well, when you play the card game, do you get it right the first time? And they're like, well, no, because you're learning the game and you get it wrong. And this is that idea of resilience. And so I said, well, we're going to play, a, you know, four card games today because we're trying to do this, this little math exercise. And you're not expected to know how to play the card game until you're in year 11. But you can start playing the card game now. And it's so funny because you watch them and none of them could do, I'd put a, an, an initial question on the board as part of their starter also. And the, the funniness of the answers that they put there, you know, as you just kind of left it, just put something, what do you think? But by the end of it, they were all answering stuff that should have been year nine, you know, year yeah, kids that even probably my year tens can't do in my current class, they had no problem. But taking away that, oh, I have to be perfect, I have to always have it right, instead just going, play the game, just try. And every time you play the game, you'll get better at the game, you, but you have to play the game, brings it out, if that makes any sense. And it gets, and I, I had very few kids not putting answers on their paper. Um, whereas when you think back to the, the GCSEs that I will mark, you get all these blanks and you're just, is that a way of getting them over that initial worry that they're not perfect um, and then getting those high prior attainers going and moving forward? I think it is such an important thing. And I've, I've spoken about this on quite a lot of shows that I think kids have lost the resilience since COVID. There seems to be very much a like, I'm just not going to do it or I'm not going to write anything because that's the easiest option because they just don't seem to seem to have like a bit of a mental block about failure. And I think that's a really important thing to bring back in is this idea that you have to give things a go. And like, I remember saying to my kids, like some of them didn't, had a question, they had to tick five answers and there were only like eight that they could pick from. And I was like, there was five points and some of them only ticked like two. And I was like, even if you picked five, and got a couple wrong the odds were that you were going to pick you would have got a couple of extra marks just from giving it a go and and like maybe just trusting your gut and, and trying to pull that prior knowledge kind of forward and give it a go and then you'll start to kind of have more confidence but I think they just haven't got that resilience that they used to and so many kids will just leave gaps and just not answer questions rather than give, giving it a go there seems to be that fear of failure perhaps why well, and i said I, I actually said that was weird i'm doing all sorts of levels of these different maths and with 
we're kind of filling in some gaps with the year nines and then the year sevens are getting you know a good dose of this um, kind of startup math and I was saying you know I was I was coming around they're like I just don't know I go well how are you going to know if you win the lottery well you have to play the lottery exactly so if you don't play the lottery or the lotto right you can't you can't win the lottery so you have to play maybe you'll be right but I'm not going to come around and sit there and, and niggle you on your book it's for you to see whether you're right or not and if you weren't you actually move forward and and go on to the next step oh that's what the right or maybe you're half right but it and I suppose is. Is you you can see that the their process as well like you can see kind of how their brain is approaching that problem to be like oh actually if you just took this little road instead of that road you'd have been there um and that, that it builds them up yeah there's so, it, it you know as we know education is a, a, the land of the pendulum swinging back and forth back and forth and there's there is merit to some of these things of just very good skill-based teaching to create that independence. You know, examples like um, point evidence explain. For a long time we were doing that. We were doing point evidence explain link. And then that just sort of disappeared. And then all of a sudden it's reappeared. And it's funny to me because again, in terms of students in progress, they'll leave a, a graph or chart question blank. Oh, to do. Well, but if you teach them point evidence explain something that simple, and they always have a chuckle because what does it spell? P. They think that's hysterical. <laughs> so, because <laughs> they're kids. And it is funny, but they can remember it because of that. I look at even my most bottom set kids, they can write a sentence about something increasing, decreasing, staying the same, and they love it. And they see an instant success. You What they would have left blank, probably. And then, well, pick some numbers from the graph that told you that. They can easily do that in another sentence. And then the last part, which is the actual kind of extend for some people, is, well, how does it fit to some science that you've learned? And I've watched the kids. I've been playing around with this again as we've been restructuring stuff. And I've, I've watched this swing back into our new curriculum. And they're all flourishing when I ask them to do something with a graph or a picture. Not answer some like silly worksheet questions. It's actually just make a graph. And now I want you to look at your graph and tell me what's the point of that graph. And they're all writing beautiful paragraphs that are actually more thoughtful analysis and moving forward with that skill i think there's a lot to be said isn't there in terms of us trying to get through there's so much to, to teach now in terms of the curriculum there's so much pressure to teach everything that we kind of forget that actually pausing and taking it a bit slower and doing it and stretching them and challenging them in a certain area we don't necessarily have the time to do that because there's so much pressure to like get that done and move on but actually if we stretch and challenge them at that point then it's going to benefit them later on so there's a lot to be said to kind of slow down and get one thing completely mastered and really challenge them in it before you kind of get them to the next step and applying the next bit mm. yeah i mean even the idea of how do you read a graph you know i mean how many kids have sat in class and have done you know numerous graphs and no one has stopped to say, well, you read a graph from left to right like a book, you know, could you break it into different sections? 
and then we'll look at the labels make your sentence with the labels on the graph and just be that explicit with them and i mean that's really that's what they're going to want to see when they have to respond on it but you watch them go oh all right <laughs> and it's like why has this become so hard and, and have we again these basic concepts of routine that how you look at something we get away from because we're trying to drive through the facts instead of teaching the skills and it will with art you would know that because the skills are just everything so but but it's a bit like what you said before, like I don't have P, but I have uh, ABC. So I have um, add. So I'll, I'll kind of give them a question. And to be fair, normally I'll pick my because mine are mixed ability. So I'll pick my low prior attainer and then I'll build and I'll, I'll pick a middle student to try and build onto the sentence that the previous person has said. And then a challenge. So that's where I flip my learning and I kind of do a challenging question and I'm like oh but if I change this how would that change that or if um like what about this situation how does that change your opinion on this and I kind of give them something that's gonna make them have to think a little bit harder um but for me it's knowing who my different students are but it, everybody in the room is still benefiting from that because they're all kind of hearing the answers and I suppose that's that's the benefit of the mixed ability is that you can they are going to raise it, but it's kind of building the lower one's confidence to be able to do it, but also that they're they're listening to the HPAs, but the HPAs are being challenged in terms of thinking about what they're going to answer, how that can apply to a more complicated, complex situation or a different kind of scenario um, is a good way of kind of really getting them thinking and beyond kind of just the general answer and it's going to make it more interesting for them and just embed and give them that wider broader knowledge yeah yeah no i see what you're saying and yeah i mean i i live in the world of very set classes i mean my young ones maybe that's why i like your sevens I love them, <laughs> um they're so cute um because they're still mixed you do have some that are quite high and then you have just a whole gamut of of people in there and I, you know as i've gotten to see them more and more over the last couple of weeks i'm starting to say oh wait a minute i need to watch you a little bit more um but i am the queen of cold calling <laughs> in the sense that i i make the little for year seven especially because they love it i um do these little security they are secret agents they each have a little name badge in a bag it's ridiculous <laughs> i know but I pull out their name badge and they have to answer. And, um, you know, then if they don't know, they can ask someone who is, you know, on their secret agent team, which is like their partner. They have to come up with that answer. <laughs> they can't just not answer the question. And at that level, because you don't know really who's high and low and middle yet, it's starting to come out, but really it isn't. You just have some kids that just want to always raise their hand. Um, it's funny that they're like, well, wait a minute, what? I can't just say, I don't know. No, you can't just say, I don't know. <laughs> you must respond. <laughs> and so go look back in your notes or talk to your neighbor. And then I will come back to you in a few minutes once we get a chance. And yeah, it's, um, it's all just this process, but the, with the high prior attainers, I mean, it, for a long time, it used to be the middle student, you know, the middle the kid that got like the C or the, what was now the four or the three, 
that middle forgotten group of kids. And now it seems like it's swung to where, wait a minute, why are the high prior attaining kids not achieving? What is that reasoning? Again, is that something to do with, you know, the broader aspiration or, you know, just the state of what kids are going through and the mental health? I don't know. It is, there There could be so many things that could cause that. So. But, but it is one of those, it's, it's, it is kids, uh, easier to go to I don't know and say I don't know rather than give it a go and get it wrong uh you've just reminded me I pulled up this blog I can't remember for the life of me who wrote it but it's 10 tips to get rid of I don't know answers um (laughs) and uh one of them is distinguishing between I don't know and I don't know so it's like the kids that are just saying it because they don't want to answer or the kids that genuinely don't know and I think that's a really important thing that we need to work out exactly which I don't know they're doing. Uh, reduce the risk of uh, failure. So we've got to make sure that they kind of, again, giving them the questions that we know that they are going to be answered. Like I, I know which colour theory questions are, are easier than others and I'll pick kids that are maybe a little bit anxious and give them the easy questions to begin with to build up their confidence of speaking out loud. Increase wait time. So you're giving them that opportunity to kind of think and you're going to tell them that you're going to come to them or tell them that you're going to ask them um instead of saying if they don't know kind of you answer it a little bit and then say what do you think and get them to give uh, a response so you're kind of twisting it a little bit uh if if somebody says i don't know you ask somebody else and then you come back and say can you comment on somebody else's answer so they kind of don't get away with it ask someone else a different question and then get student A to add to it. So that's the one that I said earlier. Front loading. Um, so you kind of give them all the answers beforehand and then kind of ask them the questions. So it should reduce the I don't know. Uh, clear question structures. So they kind of know repeatedly what's going to happen. Don't ask multiple questions at once. And know your students. I wish I had, uh, Who's this one by? Uh, by Michael Charles. Uh, so yeah, I found I, I find that quite interesting. Like when we introduced the cold calling, I, I researched that one. I was like, because I was getting a lot of I don't knows. And I'm like, how do you get like, it kind of does stop you as a teacher. But actually, we need to make the kids know that they can't get away with it. And actually, we are going to challenge them, we are going to ask them the difficult questions, and they have to answer them. I think <laughs> I know in the last couple of years, at the cold calling, I like Sometimes when they, I don't know, and you know how you, you will sit there and you're trying to think of other ways of asking the question. And sometimes you're just like, I can't ask this in any other way. Yeah. <laughs> you need to go and look or have a chat with your neighbor and look through your books a little bit. You know, you can, I guess that would be leading the question. <laughs> sometimes you just come across, you're like, I can't think of anything at this moment that can lead this child towards the answer. But I think they do you do get a quite a group that will just do the, I don't know, just because they can't be bothered. Um, and you do get a few, I find the true, I don't knows if they haven't been there a lot of times. And well, I wasn't here. Oh yeah, that's right. You weren't here. Okay. Well, fair enough. You know, you get, you'll get another question, you know, you kind of go, I'll ask him another question in the lesson that of something that we've kind of covered, but with the cold calling, um, 
I had a, quite a few at the very beginning of this year, which I found a bit anxious making myself because you don't know the kids. But there were so many that don't ask them a question. Don't ask them a question. Don't ask them yeah. a question. It's like, who, remembering who's who. who. <laughs> and I don't have like the way our, we have the online seating. It would be so, you know, I, in a way, I guess I could screenshot it somehow. But I need to like highlight those kids better. I have them written down. You know, those It'd be nice to be able to write on, like, on, on, on them, the wouldn't it? Thing, or have a little note or like just have it be like a yellow dot or something that you're like, don't ask that kid. Because, you know, in those first few days, sometimes you, well, even now I catch myself, I'll just have their seating plan up because some groups I only see every two weeks and I'm still trying to, to learn everyone. You want to give everyone a fair chance and you're kind of bouncing back and forth. Um, and I, I tend to always go boy, girl, boy, girl, because I don't, you know, some of the research that you can end up only doing one or the other, or only calling on one or the other. And so I try and mix it up. But um, the cold calling is a, a, is a good technique when you don't have too many that have anxiety. It <laughs> <laughs> is, is that there's, there's so many different things that you have to um, consider. And I suppose it's 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 basically like a little bit of a, a modern version of kind of Bloom's taxonomy, where you're kind of recalling the information, getting the comprehend it, and then thinking about the application. And then you can kind of, and then those starter and those cold calling tasks, you can then once they've recalled that, you can apply it in your lesson and use it to analyze it and kind of evaluate it and and get that deeper application. I think that's something that I've I've seen with it, that actually having those chats and, and I guess it links into oracy and the fact that having those conversations where they are building confidence to talk aloud um, and you have those kind of perhaps maybe off tangent chats or slightly deeper chats that you're intending that then they're able to produce better answers kind of afterwards. So there's a lot to be said for kind of how don't, don't pause, keep questioning until you almost hit a wall and they can't answer anymore and then um so there can be that aspect as well yeah yeah and again moving kids forward with questioning i mean one of the things i mean you kind of alluded to this i really like the idea when you ask a question and then you ask another student to judge the question but they can't just say yes, they have to say the why to it or how is that what you were thinking? And again, that's moving them forward with their language. Um, and then the idea of judging, you know, when you have, I've recently had um, a couple of questions up where they had to judge three or four different questions. Um, they were math problems and they had to pick which one was correct. And I thought that was quite good. Um, in developing that kind of pushing forward um, or saying why something is good versus why something is bad um, and just being able to to actually verbalize or write it and that's you know they'll they'll parrot facts back to you but being able to judge something or being able to say why something is something or why is something better than something else. And in art, I would imagine, you know, when you look at a piece, you know, what were they doing here and why is this a better example of that than that one? You know, that skill 
in science can be quite important. We use it with models. Like, why is this a good model? Why is it a bad model? Um, but you have to develop that, that thinking of being able to look at something and judge it. Kids are funny about judging things. I mean, they'll yeah, judge but... each other out on the field, but, but when it comes <laughs> to, like knowledge, it's like, they won't, they don't, I don't know why that is. And I guess that is back to the blooms. That is a higher order thinking skill. Um, because yeah. that's quite often what we do in art because i i like controversial artists so we'll quite often look at um we look at damien hurst and his kind of bug pieces that he uses real life bugs and whether we talk about whether that's ethical or not and then later on we come back to him and kind of look at his uh wreck of the unbelievable where he makes these sculptures and then puts them in the water and pretends to find them and charges people thousands of pounds and he basically only made one bit on each of them and paid other people to make them versus kind of Jason DeCara's Taylor, who's making underwater sculptures that are growing coral and making artificial reefs and is trying to re kind of populate um, the waters in certain areas. And it's like kind of how art very similarly can be art for good versus art for bad and kind of the different ways that art can be be used. But they are quite reluctant at the start kind of to give their opinions or they give very kind of basic opinions. It's like they're like, oh, no, that one's better. And then actually when we delve into it, and we're, and we're kind of like, yeah, yeah, art for good is better. But it's like, but but which one would you pick if you could be a multimillionaire and pay other people to do your work and you don't really have to do a lot, you just have to be a little bit controversial or you can work and not earn very much, but you're saving the environment. Then they start to split. Um, and it is and it is interesting seeing the little cogs go and, and seeing how they can think in different ways and get challenging them to think in, in different ways. Mm. And, and again, it, but you have to kind of add that then into extended writing and, and getting them to write well. And, and it is the language that you've used in those conversations. You can then kind of compare and contrast and, and, it, and get better written work from them. But it is, is kind of, but there are those kids, aren't there, that are potential HPAs or those kids that may have, been flagged up as HPAs earlier on but it just you've, you're like how on earth is that kid an HPA in secondary school but like if you actually chat to them all they can they're they're very good and they're very intelligent of in terms of how they get themselves out of trouble but they're also good at getting themselves into trouble but they're very articulate and they can do it but they don't necessarily apply it and I think they're they're the ones that kind of get missed per se hmm. yeah no I see what you're saying <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking of a, a certain year 10 that's uh is, is very good at the chat but um doesn't necessarily apply it in lessons <laughs> yeah I mean some of that is again I don't I mean some people say oh it's just because they're bored I know I mean is that bored or is it that because of where they are at in their own development they don't see where they're going you know so they don't take in what they're supposed to do correctly yeah that they don't have the aspirations of what they could achieve so therefore like for them just passing is good enough so therefore they kind of don't apply themselves whereas perhaps in primary school they apply themselves without kind of as much thought maybe in secondary school they actually become more aware and and it's seen as uncool to be doing well 
um, and spend that much time studying. So, like, actually, they're perfectly, they're intelligent enough that they don't have to do much. But you see this, I mean, again, I've had quite a few students over the years and, and more so in the States because it's a little different with how you get into medicine. Um, here, you know, you, you, you were going into your A-levels and you were pretty much getting set into a, a pre-medical program and then off into your medicine. Where I've had students that um, have been brilliant, perfect, amazingly high achieving. They go into their bachelor's for their first for their first part of their degree for medicine. And all of a sudden they're not the big fish anymore. They're the little fish and they completely bomb out because they have to work at it. And they've ever, it's always been easy for them. And because they've never had to struggle to learn how to learn, they don't, they don't aspire and reach where they could, where I've had more kids go on and become medical doctors, which is surprising to me. And people that are really into science and doing quite well, that because they had to struggle and they had to learn how to do the learning in high school, that when they went on to, you know, A-level or their first university or pre-college or whatever it is, they already had that skill down. And so when they walked in, they already knew where they were in the fish realm and they knew how to work around that to get where they wanted to go. And I, I found that very interesting over time about the resilience of what you would consider genius children where it's just been easy compared to the kid that's had to work it is it is one of those isn't it is the how hard do you work in the situation is that it comes back to the resilience you're more if you if you're used to just succeeding all the time and you don't find anything difficult then suddenly when you find something difficult you hit a wall and you kind of they kind of break down whereas opposed to if you've you've had other you've had that built up that you have to keep trying and keep going if you fail then you you can become more determined and have a better work ethic and still reach the same point but perhaps have the better life skills to be able I guess it's there's also there is that other side to being an HPA that once you've got that name as an HPA um it can sometimes be a parental pressure as well as a teacher pressure that you must do well you must get straight A's there's there's that pressure as well well you always hear oh you're not re I hate when people say this uh, to be honest I'll just say it. you're not <laughs> reaching your potential or he's yeah. working or she's working below their potential well their potential isn't really anything you, you say that to kids and it's almost like I don't know it's almost deflating a, a high a high achieving student keeping being told that they're working below their potential they just kind of think well yeah it's been easy I don't have to work very hard I'm fine you know I, I always find that somehow demotivating for kids and I've had quite a again quite a few really bright kids that you just watch them slacking along and everyone just says oh you're really smart you're really smart you're really smart yeah but you're not smart unless you actually do it 
<laughs> you're nothing, yeah. you know, unless you actually are applying yourself and going forward with it. It's nice that everyone tells you you're smart, but smart is not just someone telling you you're smart. Smart is actually going on and doing stuff. And as we know, you hear about, was it, um, oh, his name, you'd know. Um, I was just doing this not too long ago. Is it from Virgin? Um, oh, Richard Branson. Yes, you know, and his struggles with learning. And Einstein struggles with learning. Well, you know, I'm sure no one said Both oh, dyslexic, yeah. Yeah, no, no one said that to them. They had to figure it out, but they just figured it out and went on with it. Um, and again, maybe this all comes down to resilience as we sit here discussing this. <laughs> <I keep laughs> circling around. Maybe it actually is an issue of building resilience and you just got to keep going and train harder than what the race you're trying to do is because there's no kid that's gonna rock up and get straight nines they those kids have worked hard you you have to work so hard to get a nine now it's not an easy thing and they keep moving the brackets like for, for me it's one that we actually say in art that to get a nine at gcse you have to produce a level standard work to get a nine at a level you have to produce university standard work so yeah. it's like we, we are pushing them to this extreme that they have to overachieve in order to reach those high levels but actually is that healthy for them to be working that much are they building those other skills that they actually need uh, or or is that pressure kind of forcing them to they need to kind of they're creating that so much anxiety that if they don't work that hard that they won't achieve it well i mean there are, there are cultures that struggle with that you know, where everyone gets 100%. And I uh, I have had that one student that's gotten, he was Aspergic, but really high-functioning high Aspergic that got 100% on his tests. <laughs> and you're just looking at that. And, you know, it, it is what it is. But I think, you know, we had a program at my previous school before I moved here where we were doing A-level work, where actually it would have been junior college. So you know, like the foundation year that kids do at university, they were doing foundation year work. They would have been year tens. But is, is that just the cycle of where things are going? Because I, I still have my GCSE and A-level books and I remember actually getting them out uh like I have them in my cupboard and I get them out and I'm like gosh I got A's like that wouldn't get me that would that would get me like maybe a five now like we're constantly moving that standard up higher and we're just putting this pressure on these children to like perform more perform more perform more each year kids would be in these it was an immense pressure they were taking this class as a zero period it was like a whole program that was done in the morning so they're getting less sleep. They're taking on this extra work. They're being taught by the college, the college teachers, lecturers. And they had like two or three subjects that they were doing. And you would sit there just thinking to yourself, you know, they, at that age, they were doing further maths, like A-level further maths. But yet I would find them. It's so funny because I would find them in my basic maths of regular science not able to do certain functions so they were drilled forward 
in this extreme way to do all this fancy stuff, which I felt like they were just parroting. But when you ask them fundamentals about division or, or actual logic of how you solve a problem that should be quite easy, no clue. Because they could only play the game that parrot, 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 whatever was right there. They didn't really understand division at all. Am I making sense with that? Yeah, completely. Because I think I think that's the difference, isn't it? The kids that could just recall stuff, and that's quite often what happens at, at SATs is that primary teachers teach to the test, and they learn their parrots, and they just recall the information, and they do really well, and then they struggle at secondary school with all these really hard kind of targets. Because, but actually, it's better for them to learn the schema and, and learn the process, and then be able to stretch it and cross over different curricula and and applications of different strategies um, and actually it reminds me of the, my very first teaching job my head of department there I didn't quite understand it he was talking to another teacher and I didn't have children at the time and um he was they were talking about the sats and he said I told my kid just to not revise and, and just do as well as he could do because I knew that his sats would generate his GCSE target and I didn't want him to have that pressure on his GCSEs. I wanted him to outperform his target, not try and chase his target. And that's that's from the other side, from like a teacher being like, actually, this is what I want for my child. I don't want them to have a high target because I, I don't want them to feel like they're constantly not achieving their potential. Yeah, I mean... I think you can over push kids and I think when you start getting like what we've done with, you know, the silliness of not having equation sheets and in, in physics and oh that's so great. No, that's just like factual recall. The actual process of knowing how to use the equation is more important. The yeah. Way that you use the, um I, I think you're missing the foundations. When you shove kids too forward it's a balancing act. You can't overshove. Like my example with the what would be the year 10s being shoved way past, you know, even A level compared to kids that are going through and actually having really good fundamentals that can carry them through. I think we've missed that somehow. I know with within science, it, there's just so much content. You know, you look at kids, you know, no equation sheet. <laughs> you look at a foundation level kid, no equation sheet and three electrolysis level things that you have to know. How about just understanding the concept of what electrolysis is at a, at a, at a, like at an actual structural level, not at three specifically random ways um, that they don't grasp, you know, what are you trying to achieve? when you're moving kids forward, is it a knowledge and an actual something they can take with them? Or is it just that you're trying to shove facts down their throat? Um, I'm more into the skill of things. That's the thing, they need, they need to know the knowledge, but if they have the skills, they're gonna be able to access more knowledge. Like I always find it really surprising that on the summer term, at the start of that project, we do a mind map. And actually I'm really shocked that by two thirds of the way through year seven, a lot of the year sevens haven't even done a mind map in another subject 
and don't know what one is. And I think they're the kind of fundamentals that our students kind of need to know. Like they need to know how to structure an essay. They need to know how to read a question, digest it, break it down, be able to answer it. They need to know how to have opinions and they need to know how to justify their answers and justify their responses and they're the they're the kind of the basics that if you get those right that they're going to be able to stretch those over to other subjects yeah I mean like in terms of like just even reading a question I had a funny little plenary today that had a you know an, an empty table there and it was like three lines three columns and three lines or three rows and literally if you were carefully reading it says the headings are in the quotes and then all the rest of the stuff, it was like a little paragraph on one chemical and another little paragraph, short paragraph, three sentences each on another chemical. And you just had to plug and play. But if you notice, it said this chemical and it linked it directly to that heading and that information directly to that heading. And I watched kids just, some kids with their reading skill flew and they were able to do it, but that wasn't the norm. And it was like, well, this is just so straightforward, but yet they couldn't, It that what does the reading actually tell you? What are you are reading for information, I guess? Is, That's the thing. Are we, are we pushing kids to read too quickly and that they're not digesting things? They are moving too quickly. Like I had a quiz today and uh, it said, which one is not a harmonious color? And I high block made not bold and I underlined it. And the majority of the kids that went, oh, I, I highlighted the one that was. And I was like, I couldn't have made it any clearer in that question. But they're just so quick. I don't know. I, th I think that's also like, is that today's day and age with media and stuff? They're so quick to flick through things and read. They're not like that idea of scrolling through your phone and, and TikTok and what have you. That actually they're not really reading things. They're just skimming everything. And actually students don't know how to properly read a question anymore i don't know i could maybe going too far <laughs> <laughs> so yeah well um yeah i don't know <laughs> <laughs> on that note i'm gonna uh play uh our news today um which is an interesting one because it talks about everything um what's going on in teaching but also um everything that's going on in israel and how that's um affecting um, different schools as well so uh, should be a good news today. In today's educational environment students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face -face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly and access actionable data that drives student success. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. 
The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. Just Stop Oil have spray-painted universities across England. The climate campaigners used orange paint to coat buildings at the universities of Leeds, Manchester and Cambridge, according to a report on the BBC News website. The latest protests came after other universities across the country were also targeted. Just Stop Oil say the protests are against the UK government's plans to licence new oil and gas projects. The BBC report featured comments from a spokesperson for University of Leeds, which said that whilst they support the right to legal protest, they were hugely disappointed that the results had been vandalism. At the University of Cambridge, a protester painted the neo-Gothic King's College orange and was confronted by members of the public. The majority of protesters have been arrested and charged with criminal damage. After the Tory party conference, attention turned to Labour's proposals for education should they be elected. Bridget Phillipson, Shadow Education Secretary, said a Labour government would upskill non-math specialists in primary schools to create the maths equivalent to phonics. The announcement marks a clear dividing line with Conservative policies, with Labour focused on the youngest school children, whilst Conservatives have focused on extending compulsory maths teaching to 18. The curriculum review would also be tasked with bringing maths to life and directing teachers to show children how numeracy is used in the world around them. The plans have been tentatively welcomed by the NAHT, and General Secretary Paul Whiteman said it was vital that Labour builds upon the excellent maths teaching that is already taking place. Jeff Barton of Askell added, ensuring that primary schools have the funding for the resources they need was vital to improving attainment. After the distressing news of events unfolding in Israel, many news outlets have reported on government plans to support Jewish schools with extra security guards. Security and police patrols have already been increased, but the government has given £3 million in funding. Measures taken by some schools already include pupils being told to remove blazers and school trips being postponed. The BBC also reported that three schools have closed due to concerns. The Community Security Trust, CST, which provides protection for Jewish communities in the UK, said there had been 139 anti-Semitic incidents since the recent attacks on Israel. At this time last year, there had been only 21 incidents. A government spokesperson said it was very concerned a small number of Jewish faith schools had temporarily closed and that it would be working to support them to open safely. Finally, BBC Wales education correspondent Bethan Lewis writes that children as young as seven or eight are using social media, according to a major survey in Wales. 
Responses from more than 32,000 children aged 7 to 11 suggest almost half use social media sites or apps a few times a week. Public health experts said the data was concerning, as most social media carry minimum age recommendations of 13. Parents also responded with many saying they found it hard to strike the right balance between the benefits and pitfalls of smartphones. Full details of the survey can be found on the BBC Wales section of the news website. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. And uh, Sonia has had to go, but uh, thank you so much for joining in on my show. If anybody wants to join in on any future shows or wants to chat about anything teaching or teachering, uh, do drop me a message on uh, Twitter and come join one of my shows. It's a great thing to come and do. Um, so following on from that, so I wanted to talk about um, a different type of prioritizing students and this is based on the information that i found on thirdspacelearning.com um so this talks about the fact that um high prioritainers that come from disadvantaged backgrounds they tend to fall behind um more and what can we do to stop it so obviously they're like a, a slightly different circumstance and we need to think consider those as well so within higher prioritizing students there's, there's obviously different brackets and actually this was uh, written by lottie bates um in august this year so it's relatively up-to-date information but the fact is that um students that have come from prior um disadvantaged backgrounds and have prior, high prior attaining um, status, they are three times more likely to fall out of the top third of attainers by the time they reach key stage four compared to the most affluent peers. So um, disadvantaged higher attainers are 37% more likely to fall behind. Other attainers generally 17% and most affluent higher attainers are uh, 12%. So um, this is um, from the summary of the Sutton Trust key findings. Um, looking at kind of why they don't fill out their heart, uh, full potential. So are the disadvantaged higher attainers like the forgotten cohort? Um, obviously kind of um, low prior attaining students, they're more likely to kind of get catch up tutoring at school and things like that. Um, and then perhaps higher attaining students are kind of caught in between. They're not necessarily pushed as hard as they can be. Um, but specifically the disadvantaged groups, they've obviously potentially got um, more to do at home. They've got more um, responsibility. They might have to look after siblings. They might have to cook their own food. So potentially they're having that loss of time to um, be able to um, do their homework or do extensive or reading and things like that. And potentially they're not necessarily having those uh, oracy conversations that um, I talked about on my oracy show about how like those cultural capital environments that potentially might be having over the table in more affluent backgrounds. Um, but basically, if the disadvantaged group progressed at the same rate as their peers, they would have been almost 7,000 more achieving top grades. Over five years, this amounted to over 28,000 pupils. So it is really important that we're not kind of forgetting about these. But actually, it's quite interesting that the, the data also goes on to which students um, within this are more likely to fall behind. And they tend to be boys, white and black, Caribbean pupils, pupils with specific 
educational need and people's in the northeast so it's quite interesting that those are the ones that um kind of seem to hit the areas for falling behind um and i do think some of it is mindset and thinking that um not just academic anxiety um but thinking about kind of how they can what they need to do in order to keep up with that higher attainment there's a lot more pressure um and potentially they've got the opposite kind of pressure at home where actually maybe their family don't like them to have a better chance at life that people don't like me not having as much of a chance at life is is what one of the quotes that was in here um 65% of disadvantaged higher attainers think they will be studying in two years' time compared to 75% of other higher attainers and 85% of private school students. So obviously, like, if, you, if you're if you a pri- private school high prior attainer, you are drilled in that you it's more of a social norm that you'd go to university, whereas I suppose those disadvantaged students, they're far less likely to continue on with higher education. Um, so it's thinking about in terms of kind of uh, what they're going to do. And the same as like the 26% of high attaining disadvantaged pupils received um, catch up funding compared to 34% of other free school meals. So because they're higher priority attaining students, even though they might be slipping behind and not attaining as well as they should in terms of their tracking, perhaps because of that, that we, we're kind of letting that lag. We're not putting the correct intervention in for those students because we deem them to still be doing well, but actually they're not doing as well as they could do and we're not supporting them as well as we could do. But perhaps they're perceived differently because they're not necessarily getting their homework done or things like that, but actually that's not the reason that they're not attaining. Like it's it's our job to support them and make sure that they achieve as well. Um, Other higher attainers, 91% of other higher attainers said their parents said they always talk to them about their school progress, whereas disadvantaged higher attainers, only 75%. So like I said, they're not having those conversations at home that are supporting them and encouraging them and expecting them to do well. There's not necessarily being spoken about and I think I think that's something that we as teachers need to pick up and we need to fill the gaps so we need to make sure that we are talking to these students we are showing that we have high expectations of these students just because they come from disadvantaged backgrounds does not mean that they cannot achieve um, and I think that's important that we kind of make sure that we are still pushing that um, so um, we need to make sure that schools are ensuring that every pupil fulfills their potential um, and whether that be kind of um, is are the high prior attainers actually getting um, if they're if they're coming from um, a pupil premium or free school meal background um, are they getting that use of that funding because obviously that is uh, applied in a school level but actually if they're high prior attaining and they're they're getting on with school do they actually get the amount of that funding as, as a kid that's low prior attaining on, on pupil premium. There's a lot more money going to be spent on that child with intervention. Are we making sure that that pupil premium money is being spent accurately and correctly and to the right places to in order to have the correct effect? That's something as a school that we need to think about in terms of, of those. And it can be also like a social thing in terms of potentially they don't want to be seen doing those extra clubs, the voluntary clubs, the extra voluntary competitions, 
the things that are going to uh, encourage their high prior attainers. Um, I remember <laughs> as a child, I at one school, I was exceptionally gifted at a violin. No surprise that my sister is a music teacher now. And I think maybe actually I was gifted at the violin because my sister was training to be a music teacher from a young age and enjoyed making me do my practice. And actually that was the reason I became good at it. Feel free to listen back to one of my very first shows, which was teaching in the family, to hear all about how much I hated that. Um, but actually, I got a scholarship to a private school and I, I went over there for my GCSEs. And, and when I went there, suddenly I was in a pool of fish where everybody was exceptionally talented. We even had one student um, after I left um, who I was sat playing the violin with she went on to become a finalist in Britain's Got Talent um, and is a very successful violinist that plays around the world and there were other kids that played in the National Youth Orchestra and but I, I suddenly went from this pool where there weren't many kids that played and I was quite good at it because I practiced and now I'm at a school where no matter how much I practice I'm never going to be as good as them these kids are talented um, so I kind of did did the best thing that I knew what to do rather than being in a pool of lots of violinists and, and being a little bit rubbish or feeling rubbish. If you put me in another school, I'd have been amazing. But I felt rubbish at the time because of the other high priority students. Um, so I decided to learn the viola because there was only one other viola. So I could sit with them. We could have a laugh. Had to learn a whole new clef and how to read a whole different type of music and then a whole different uh, instrument, which actually now that I look at it, is pretty skillful. But basically, I did it because I didn't want to feel quite as rubbish. I wanted to be sat with the cool kids and my friends and have a laugh and not feel the pressure that I felt sat with those incredibly higher attaining students um, that were at the National Youth Orchestra every weekend. So I think it, you can be, um, in terms of your circumstance, the, the areas that are around you and the pressures that are around you. And from a social aspect as well, you can, high prioritainers can potentially kind of think, not drop off the study. Whereas I think there isn't necessarily that stigma in primary school. Everyone's kind of on quite an even keel, but certainly when the secondary school arrives and homework ups itself, the pressures and stuff within the school system changes. But it's it's one of those, there are lots of different things that we need to um, consider. And I think one of the things that you need to do is make sure that all staff have um, correct documentation and they know exactly who those students are. Um, and and things potentially, they it might be that they're not necessarily high prioritainers in everything. Maybe they're just exceptionally good at maths, but things that can kind of help inform staff on their planning is really important. Um, and kind of know who those students are. And, and as, a, as a teacher, you want to know who's borderline, who who can you push, who can you pick up and bring to these extra sessions that can um, push them or seating plans, who can you sit together that's going to really boost each other? Because actually that's one of the things that um, high prioritainers tend to do well. There's a lot of scientific evidence in the fact that um, if you teach somebody else, it embeds the learning. So the fact that they can learn all these different skills and, and learn all the material, if they can then explain it and teach it to somebody else, that's going to embed those skills further. So that's another great one for kind of pushing your high prioritainers. Um, make sure your high prioritizing topics are chosen specifically and make sure you're kind of 
um, giving them high, uh, high challenging questions and extended writing opportunities. But it's one of those, you've got to make sure that they are ready for it and they've got uh, the skill set to be able to challenge them. You don't want them to constantly challenge them and then then constantly fail. It needs to be one of those that you either make it a safe place for them to fail, that it doesn't matter if they make mistakes and create that environment like we were talking about earlier that is good for students to be able to try and challenge and learn and and in a um time scale that allows that that it's not this you've got to have learned this by this point that they can have that relaxed kind of area to try and and build that resilience and try things and test things but um but also you've got to be able to make sure that they can achieve and they can get those stepping stones and have that confidence like like we said earlier you've got to give them those slightly easier questions so they get more confidence about speaking out loud and then then you create this atmosphere which is really integral to really good learning across the board but most importantly i think it actually um goes beyond a single teacher in a classroom is 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 a good curriculum you need to have a challenging curriculum that has opportunities to really really stretch these students to get them thinking about things in different ways to try different things and also that interleaves it like my curriculum, I, I could talk about my curriculum till the cows come home and I love it. But it's it's the idea that, and I, I know it's an Ofsted thing. Oh gosh, I've said the A word. Um, but the idea that your schemes are all in order for a reason, that if you took one out, you're, you're removing blocks for them to be able to access the next set of learning. Like how do you look at your schemes and actually know what they're doing in what order and why they're doing it in that order? So for me, I have a on drawing skills and it's quite nice that I do it that way so my year sevens are drawing my year eights are currently drawing and my year nines have drawn um so I can see it in in real terms as they're kind of going through it in the term and then we built look at kind of other things like we look at um uh, drawing with grids so the year sevens draw with grids and just copy it one to one to make sure it's accurate drawing whereas year eight will have a small picture that's gridded up and then they have to draw an enlarged drawing so not only they're having to draw accurately they're having to enlarge it too um so it's taking those steps and challenging to the next point so um it could be for example we have printing so we have basic uh, mono printing then we have creating your tiles and, and repetitive printing and then we have the next step up after that so it's kind of each year they develop these new kind of skills that build on the last process use that same terminology so they're able to interlock things like their color theory and their formal elements everything interlocks but i'm giving them more challenging skills and i'm giving them more challenging content so i change the artists as we go so like i said earlier like year seven we look at damien hearse and um him uh, versus jason decarra's taylor like art versus good for evil <laughs> money versus uh uh, environment not good versus evil money can be good right I wouldn't know I'm a teacher um but and then the next year they kind of then look at more concepts we look at cubism and Islamic art and they're looking at art as a whole concept and then we flip it and we take it the next further and they look at history of art and we look at Jason um Paul Giovannolopoulos who does one thing in the style of lots of different artists through time and then uh, we challenge that and the fact that actually all the famous artists he picked are all white old men and and why was that how did you get commissioned how did you become famous and then we look at like how you used to get commissioned and then we look at Jean-Michael Basquet who was um commissioned by Jay-Z and how like he's the modern version of that um 
and and it's and it's that kind of journey of challenging your students so that knowledge gets harder but you've given them those skills and stepping stones to be able to access the knowledge but you're constantly giving them those challenging questions so that they can go more in depth and really think about what it is that they've they've learned but also kind of just creating the right environments and and actually this goes back to a book i read last year atomic habits um, and there's a section in that that the guy wanted to do an experiment and decided that he wanted his child to become really good at chess. So they lived and breathed chess. So the they all played it as a family. They talked about it as a family. And that's all they did every night, every weekend. And actually, his two children both became grandmasters and the younger daughter actually became the greatest grandmaster, um, youngest, sorry, grandmaster ever. So we create the right environment for our students, then they can achieve but it's making sure we put the right stepping stones in so we don't put too much pressure on them. We build resilience, which is the big thing that's come out of tonight's show, that actually you can be successful, but you could just be a parrot. And actually, if you get the wrong question at the wrong time and, and actually won't be able to apply that knowledge after you leave. So it's really important that we're building resilience in these students and that they're able to apply that knowledge in a, a broader sense and that they know what type of careers and aspirations they can have beyond this and they don't pigeonhole themselves and they think about the different ways they can apply it. And if we built that knowledge up really strong and those skills up really strong, then they can be successful because they've got that resilience and they've got that understanding that actually they will try anything and they can see whether it works in any way, in any circumstance, and that will make them successful. I hope you've enjoyed tonight's show and look forward to seeing you another Monday. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward... In today's educational environment, students and teachers are juggling a mix of face-to-face, online and blended learning courses. Canvas by Instructure helps teachers navigate these diverse learning experiences with a user-friendly virtual learning environment that offers flexible access to courses and a consistent learning experience, all while streamlining everyday teaching processes. The world's best schools and universities are using Canvas to create dynamic courses, collaborate seamlessly, and access actionable data that drives student success. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, publishing professional development books and resources to support great teaching and learning in schools around the world. Have you checked out their latest releases? Use the code JCTTR2324 for 20% off your order. Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Are you looking for lesson planning materials to kickstart the new term? We've got you covered. The Day is a global online resource that turns the news into lessons. We're offering listeners a free resource on Andrew Tate that you can find on thedaynews.co forward slash Tate. Inspire personal development and critical thinking for your students by downloading the Tate Debate today and feel more confident addressing sensitive topics with your class. Visit thedaynews.co forward slash Tate to find out more. You've been
been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.